0: It's awesome to be here with you guys this morning uh, as we gather to worship. Uh, We started getting some phone calls throughout the week last week of this person being out of town, this person being on vacation with spring break. And we started realizing, oh wow, these are all of our volunteers that help set up everything and we won't have anyone here. Uh, it was like half of our church is on vacation this week. Uh, and so there was a bit of concern, but uh, everyone that was here this morning that jumped in, all hands on deck, uh, it, just, it just reaffirmed to me the incredible people that God is bringing here. Uh, as everyone stepped up to say, well, we'll come, uh, we'll help get all this set up uh, and uh, have been awesome. So thank you guys, everyone that came this morning uh, to hugely step up uh, and help make this possible this morning. Uh, and Ease the stress a little bit. Um, so, we're going to continue on then in our study of the book of John. Uh, we are continuing on this year and a half journey through the book of John, going verse by verse, uh, and we've made it to chapter 2. Um, so, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them or turn them on, whatever your preference may be. We're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, they have uh, some Bibles underneath the chairs. Uh, feel free to take that with you. It's our gift to you. We want you guys to have that uh, with you to take. Um, we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want to step back a little bit and make sure we remember kind of the overview of what John is doing here, kind of the overarching structure of his entire book. So John gives us at the very end in chapter 20, he gives us the purpose of why he's even writing it. Uh, he has a singular purpose in why he's writing this book. He wants everyone who reads it and hears it um, to accomplish one thing. Uh, so in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 he gives us that purpose he said now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing in him you may have life in his name and so John is saying this is the purpose of why I'm writing it all of these signs are pointing to these two truths that Jesus is in fact the Christ the Messiah this promised one of the Old Testament He is the Son of God. And then secondly, by believing in him, you would have life in his name. So that's kind of his overarching uh, purpose of why he's writing this. And his breakdown, there's kind of four chunks of the book. Uh, So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, there's the prologue, just kind of him laying out this is who Jesus is. Uh, And then at the very end, chapter 21 is an epilogue, kind of a a wrapping up of uh, his entire book. And then right in the middle, there are two big chunks. So in chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 12, verse 11, you have Jesus' public ministry, those three years of his life. And within those, there are seven different signs that John tells us that Jesus did, seven different miracles. And remember, each of those miracles, each of those signs, we're trying to prove the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So often many um, commentators refer to that section as the book of signs because it's separated in those seven different signs. Well, then in chapter 12, there's a transition that happens. And then the last half of the book, through chapter 20, is the final week of Jesus' life. So the first half is his entire ministry, and the last half is his final week. Whenever he enters in chapter 12 on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, that point on is the final week. And so that's kind of his breakdown and his overall um, purpose of what he's doing. And so as we look here in chapter 2, we see this is the first of Jesus' signs these seven signs that kind of break up this first chapter. One of these signs that's trying to point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you will have life. And so that's kind of the, I want us to kind of put that in the back of our minds as we read this and try to say, what does this sign have to say about Jesus as the Christ? And how by believing in him will I have life? So let's look now at John chapter two, verses one through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some of that water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it had now become wine and did not know where it came from. So the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is the story that Jesus gives us, that John the gospel writer gives us of Jesus, the first of his signs. And so I want to uh, ask three questions this morning as we're looking at this. I want to ask three questions as we try to break this apart and try to answer the questions of, what does this have to do with Jesus being the Christ, and how does this give us life? And those three questions are, I want to look and ask the question, what was Mary thinking when she came to Jesus? What was Mary thinking? But secondly, I want to try to answer, well, what was Jesus thinking when Mary came to her? And third, I want to ask, what should we be thinking? What should we be thinking? So those are the three kind of sections we'll be going through. What was Mary thinking? What was Jesus thinking? And what should we be thinking? So first, what was Mary thinking? We see in verses one through three, this kind of sets the stage and gives us the setting for this miracle. It was the third day, probably three days after Jesus' last uh, encounter there with Philip and Nathaniel at the end of chapter one, calling those disciples to him. So there's now a group of about five disciples we see in the book of John following him. Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, and the one unnamed disciple, more than likely John. And on this third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was also there. Now, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So this kind of sets the stage, telling us what's going on. It's three days after Philip and Nathanael have been called. They're at a wedding. Jesus' mother was also there. Uh, It's going to be a big party. Then we see in verse 3 something happens. The wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, Jesus, they have no wine. So what was Mary thinking in this whole scenario? Well, in order to kind of understand that, we have to understand a little bit historically what's going on here and what a wedding was like in the first century. Because honestly, it's hard for us, because I know my tendency is I read about a wedding in Cana, and I try to impose my kind of Western American idea of what a wedding is onto this story. And if we do that, we lose some bit of what John is trying to tell us. Right. So we can't look at this and kind of try to understand it and look through and go, OK, is this like an American wedding? Like what was the hashtag that they were using at this wedding what was going on? When did the big reveal happen whenever the groom saw the bride for the first time? Uh, when did they do the Cupid shuffle in this whole process? Like we can't do that. We can't impose that onto this story. So we have to understand historically what's going on, and, that, and you don't have to uh, have a master's or a PhD to do that. You can honestly, any good study Bible will give you any historical context you need to know like that. Uh, this is not something that's above, any of us have access to this. So if you don't have a study Bible, a good one I would recommend is the ESV study Bible. The English Standard Version has a great study Bible, but there's a lot of great study Bibles out there, and they'll help us understand historically what's going on. So weddings in this first century particularly in the Jewish tradition were usually a week long. I mean it was a partay. It wasn't just a party, it was a party. They had a good time. They invited all of their friends and not just their friends but also acquaintances which kind of understand why Jesus is bringing these five disciples that he met 3 days ago. All right? So try to imagine going to a wedding that you were invited to, the US RSVP'd for, and you just show up with five people you met at Starbucks 3 days before. <laughs> Uh, Stacy and Brandon are not in here, but they're getting married in, uh, the summer. And I promise that I will not do that to them. I will RSVP. And that is the amount of people that will show up. Um, But you brought your friends, you brought your acquaintances, uh, and it was a huge party for a week. Typically, people would take off their work to be able to go and celebrate this new union of these two people. People were married younger, more than likely this couple was teenagers. Uh, They were younger as they were getting married, and it was a huge party. Now, this, this happened here at Cana in Galilee, and that was about eight miles from where Jesus was raised in Nazareth. So it was about a day's walk. It was a decent, uh, it was a, a long way away, but it was a day's walk. And so that explains why it looks like Mary was also there. It seemed like Jesus and Mary had some connection with the family. And Mary wasn't uh, just there, but it seems like she also knew some of the intricate details of what was going on. It seemed like she had some help in process of the party planning of this. So she was the chair of the party planning committee. She had been searching for weeks on Etsy for how to make this party good. And she was uh, intricately involved with the process, which is how she knew when the wine ran out before anyone else did. So it seems like there's a possible connection here with Jesus and Mary to the family. They are close to them. She is involved. Uh, They weren't far away from each other. And this was... Mary's concern because you see in the first century it was a very much a shame culture Uh, it was very much a a culture driven by shame and to run out of wine at a wedding in which people are taking off work which is a huge party wine was a centerpiece of this celebration throughout the Jewish tradition wine is associated with joy and to run out of that at a wedding would be one of the most shameful and embarrassing things that you could do and these poor teenagers who are putting this on It would all be placed on them. And so Mary, more than likely, again, knowing the family, seeing the situation, goes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. They have no wine. We've got to do something. Run to Trader Joe's or something. Grab some three-buck chuck and come back here because we've got to do something. Because if not, then shame and guilt will be placed on these kids. And she looks to Jesus, who at this point had not performed any miracles. So she probably wasn't expecting anything miraculous. But she was probably looking to him as a resourceful son, who at this point was 30 years old. Possible that Joseph has died at this point and Mary's a widow because he's not mentioned from here on out. And Jesus has stepped up to help be so resourceful and helpful that she looks to him in this moment of need to say, they have no wine, do something. So this is what Mary was thinking. This was her context and her primary concern. She just wanted the wedding to reach its end without embarrassment or shame. That's what she was concerned about. That was what was running through her mind. I want the wedding to reach its end without embarrassment or shame. But secondly, what was Jesus thinking? Because Jesus was obviously on a different wavelength than Mary. Right? We see that in the text in verse 3 when Mary comes and says, they have no wine. How does Jesus respond? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What a weird response. What a strange thing to say, right? I don't know if you're anything like me, but any time, uh, sometimes, or not any, but sometimes when I have conversations with my wife, or sometimes anyone with the opposite sex, it seems like we can sometimes be like two ships passing in the night where I'm going, okay, I know we're talking about the same thing, but it seems like we're not at all talking about the same thing. And I see a bit of that here with Mary and Jesus, where Mary comes and says, they've run out of wine, we need to do something. And Jesus looks at her and says, my hour has not yet come. What are you talking about? I can only imagine Mary's response like, what hour, what, what, what woman, you call me woman? What are you doing? I'm your mother, like what is going on? They just don't have wine and I need you to get some. That's all I'm asking. What hour are you talking about? So what was Jesus thinking about here? Well, to answer the question, I want to look at that phrase, my hour has not yet come, and see where else does John, or particularly Jesus, say this in the Gospel of John. Right, these are the things that we should do as we read the Bible, and we come to stuff that doesn't make sense. Right, this is a weird response by Jesus. We shouldn't just glance over and keep going, but when those questions come, press into those. Those are great questions to ask. Press into them and go, what does he mean, my hour has not yet come? And go and begin to search through, look and see if there's any cross-references in your Bible. Go on the Internet. Go to almost any Bible software uh, resource on the Internet. BibleGateway.com is one I use all the time. Just go on there, type in hour, and it shows you this, that word hour is used seven other times in the book of John. It shows you each of those instances. And twice in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, he says this same phrase, My hour has not yet come. So this is a, a refrain here in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. In this first book, in the book of signs, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean? Well, he gives us a hint uh, in, verse, in chapter 12, uh, verses 20 through 23. This is the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the final week of his life. And he comes in on a donkey and everyone's praising him. Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to your name in the highest And they're bowing down with palm branches, and he enters in, and in verse 20 it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. At this point in chapter 12, his hour had now come. There was no more waiting. There was no more pushing off. But his hour had come. And remember, in that whole breakdown of John, this moment right here at the trial for entry in John chapter 12 is the transition moment. This is when it shifts from Jesus' public ministry to now his final week. This begins his passion week, the Easter week, leading up to the cross. The the scene and the stage is now set, and every wheel and cog begins to set in motion, and everything done from here on out is leading Jesus to the cross. His hour had now come. So what was Jesus thinking whenever Mary asked this? Strangely enough, Jesus was thinking about the cross. He was thinking about his hour of death his final hour. So okay, we go, all right, well that's what Jesus was thinking and so Mary was thinking about the wedding, she was concerned about the wine logistics. Jesus is over here thinking about the cross. But we still didn't have to ask the question, what made him think about the cross from her question? Why did his mind go there? Because she didn't say anything about wood or nails or crucifixion or executions. She just said, "Hey, our friends have run out of wine." What is it in that phrase that made Jesus jump to the cross? So Jesus was concerned in that moment about his own death. When Mary spoke to him there, he was thinking about the cross. So why? Why would a wedding and a statement like that about needing more wine make him think about that? Well, we see in the Old Testament that wine often symbolizes a season of joy and abundance. This is often the symbolism. In, In Jeremiah 31 that Katie read earlier, that's what the entire passage is about. Jeremiah is prophesying about a day that will come whenever our mourning will be turned to joy. He said, in that day, there will be no more sadness. There'll be no more pain. Listen, guys, I know things suck right now, but trust me, there's coming a day when all of your hurt, all of your pain, and all of your mourning will be turned to eternal joy. And on that day, you'll have all of the wine and all of the joy that you could ever want. And he says, there are vineyards that will be flowing with fruit, and the wine and the grain and the oil will abound. And he's saying that the wine that he's talking about in Jeremiah 31 is a symbol of the joy that's to come. And so we look, Jeremiah is pointing us forward to a moment in our future. He's saying it's not here right now, but there is a day coming. And that moment's actually found in Revelation. We see in the final pages of Scripture in Revelation 19, this this picture of a party that's happening and wine, this wine, this eternal joy is being drunk. But do you know where we'll be? Do you know where we will be enjoying this wine? Do you know where we will be enjoying this eternal joy in Revelation 19? It's at a wedding. In Revelation 19, we see this wedding of Christ and His bride, Christ the perfect bridegroom and His bride the church. And Revelation 19 is this beautiful picture of a wedding feast, of his entire church gathered around a table, celebrating and praising him and drinking freely of this wine that had been prophesied for years, this symbol of now eternal and unending joy. This is what Jeremiah was pointing to. This is what the Bible was pointing to in that moment, saying there will come a day when your mourning will be turned to joy and we will have joy unending And we will drink the wine freely. And this is what was on Jesus' mind as his mother came to him at this party. When she said, they have no wine. Jesus steps back and he goes, I know there's no wine. And there will be a day when there will be unending wine. But in order to get there, I know what I have to do. I have to go to the cross and I have to die in the place of every sinner who believes in me. And I have to bear their shame and their guilt so that they can have my perfect life and so that they can have that hope of an eternal joy. And he knows what has to happen in order for the wedding to happen. And this is where his mind goes. And this is why he responds to Mary like this in such a strange way. And so while Mary was just, Mary just wanted the wedding to reach its end without embarrassment or shame, Jesus, thinking of a far grander wedding feast, knew that the shame of the cross was required for it to reach its ultimate conclusion. He knew what had to happen, right? And this is not dissimilar for any of our experience, right? If you ever go to a wedding, right, often I know what what's the human tendency is, is to either remember your wedding if you're married or if you're not married, begin to dream about what your wedding may look like. Right, So we kind of look and we begin to scrutinize everything. Well, is this good? How is that? Oh, I remember whenever we did this, that was awesome. Yeah, our nephew came down the aisle and he tripped and fell, but it was really cute because he was four and it was awesome. We look and we remember our weddings as we're at other people's weddings. And this is the same thing Jesus does whenever he's here at this wedding at Cana, at some friends. As he is there in the midst of this celebration, I'm sure he can't help but let his mind begin to wander to his wedding. To that moment that everything is working up towards when there will no longer be any mourning and no longer any sadness or pain, but only joy. And Mary comes and said, there is no wine. He says, I know, but my hour has not yet come for that to change. And so the joy of the free grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it stands in stark contrast to the fear that so many religions strike into our hearts. This is one of the differences that we see now in the rest of the parable. Uh, I mean, the rest of the story here. It's almost like a living parable, verses 6 through 11. Jesus is saying, Here's the scene of what's happening. You have these six stone water jars that are filled some with water, and Jesus says, Go and fill them up with water, and I will change them and turn them into joy. These are symbols here that Jesus is using. We see uh, elsewhere in the New Testament that these rites of purification, these Jewish rites of purification, were a part of the law of the Jewish faith but it wasn't in the Old Testament it was something that the Jewish leaders had added and so Jesus is saying that that any attempt to try to get back to God any man-made attempt to try to wash ourselves up and make ourselves clean before God he's saying it's depleted and it can't happen it's like a bunch of dirty water in the bottom of six stone water jars and he says I will come and I will change that All of these attempts of man-made religion to try to get back to God that are often driven by fear and obligation. Saying, if you want a relationship with God, you have to do this, 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 and this. And if you don't, then you better watch out because he's gonna get you. And we are driven by fear, shaking. Okay, well, I have to go and do these things because this is what God has commanded. I don't know what he will do if I don't. But Jesus comes and says, no. I will come with a different way. And I will take these depleted resources of religion and I will turn them into a beautiful and eternal joy through my gospel. One that is joy filled to the brim. And so Christianity is not, a, is not a religion that's driven by fear and obligation. But it's one that's driven by joy Where we don't worry, okay, what is God going to do? Here's what he's commanded, and I'm I'm worried about how he will view me or what he will do to me if I don't do these things, so I need to make sure that I'm doing all of these things in my life. And friends, this isn't just outside of Christianity. There are many churches today that believe and practically preach that same thing. Well, you better do this or else God will get you. You better do all these things. Here's the list of things that you have to do and make sure you check off. And Christianity becomes just a list of do's and don'ts driven by things that we feel obligated to do. But Jesus says, no, it's something different. Not obligation, but joy. Resting in my gospel, resting in this truth that I, the son of God, have died for you. And I have taken all of your shame and all of your guilt and put it on myself. And I died in your place. And now if you believe in me, my life is given to you. My perfection, my righteousness, my life given to you. And that's counted to your account. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see some shaking sinner trying to work his way to God. But if we are in Christ, then friends, he sees the perfect and spotless life of his son. That's how God views you. And whenever we begin to wrap our minds around that, we realize we are free to live and worship in freedom, not in fear and obligation, but out of joy in response to what God has done for us. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. It's the rhythm we see of every New Testament epistle. The, the author begins with, this is what God has done for you, therefore, this is then how you should live. The commands of the Bible are fueled by the promises of the gospel. All of the do's of the Bible are fueled by the duns of the gospel. God saying, what you are striving for, I have already done for you. You don't have to work anymore for my favor. It is given to you freely if you would believe by faith Then my perfect life is given to you and you can rest in that. It is the true and better Sabbath, no longer having to work, but resting in the perfect life of Christ. And we are now free to live in joy. Joy is what marks the Christian life. It's what we've looked at the last couple weeks. Even our evangelism should be driven by joy, by what we have experienced with God, by, by enjoying Him. So, this is what Jesus was thinking in this moment. He was saying, I know what I have to do in order to get to that wedding feast. And I am coming to replace the depleted resources of man-made religion with the beautiful and unending joy of the gospel. Changing this water that's down at the bottom that is dirty and gross and used for hands and feet and utensils and fill it up to the brim and I'll change it to the best wine you've ever had. But friends, what should we be thinking? This is what Mary was thinking. Okay, I'm worried about a wedding. This is what Jesus was thinking. I'm also worried about a wedding. It's just one in the future. What should we be thinking? I think we should look and be thinking, examining our hearts to see if we do what we do because we're motivated by fear or obligation, or are we motivated by joy? All right, this is true not only in our relationship with God, it's true in any of our relationships. All right, think of a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, and think back uh, about a month ago to a little day called Valentine's Day. I want you to think about a moment. If you were to just go and say you bought a dozen roses... You bought them, they were beautiful. Just pretend with me in this hypothetical situation that they were the most beautiful roses you had ever seen in your life. The blooms are just perfectly folding out. There's this aroma that you've never smelled before. They're perfectly placed and somehow all the thorns have fallen off and they are the perfect dozen of roses. You go and you buy them and you show up to your wife. You hand them to her and you say, it's Valentine's Day, I had to buy these for you. Here you go. How's that going to turn out? I'll give you a hint, not well. Because why? Because that's done out of obligation, saying, I bought this for you because it's Valentine's Day. I didn't want you to be mad. So here's a gift. Now take that in comparison to where, say, you just went and bought another dozen of roses. Maybe even not very pretty. They had lots of thorns. Maybe they only had 11. They didn't even have 12. It's like an unbaker's dozen of roses. And you go and you buy them, and you just take them to her on a random day. You show up, you surprise her, you drop her off, and you say, Here, I just wanted to let you know how much I love you. I've been thinking about you. And just this is, this is a small token of these tattered and broken roses, but I just wanted you to know, thank you so much for being my partner and for loving me better than anybody else I've ever known. Which one of those two scenarios is going to go better? I think we all know. But why does one mean more than the other? Even if it's done in a good spirit in Valentine's Day to say, listen, I love you so much. Here's a dozen roses. You're the best wife. You're the best husband. You're the best friend, partner I've ever had. How? Why does it not mean as much on Valentine's Day as just on a random day? Of course, you got me flowers. It's Valentine's Day. You had to. There's some bit of that, no matter how sweet or grand of a gesture it may be, It's like, well, of course, it's what he had to do. But the other is simply an expression of love that had no other motivation but joy to just want to show her how you care for her. Friends, it's the same with our relationship with God. Do you do what you do for him because you have some tinges of obligation or because it's an expression of love that has no other motivation but joy? This takes shape in so many facets of our life, if not every facet of our life. I'm just a little hesitant on using those kind of statements, uh, saying that every facet of your life is done by this. I'm sure there's some exception in there, but it's close. Nearly every facet of our life is, is determined by what we love, by what we find joy in. Are we driven by fear or by joy? And friends, this is the difference between religion and the gospel. Fear and joy. A few examples of that would be situations like fighting sin in our lives, striving to look more and more like Jesus. How do we do that? How do we fight our sinful tendencies, the, the truth that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is every single one of us in here. How do we fight that and strive to look more and more like him? Right, for the majority of my life, my thought process was, okay, I need to just focus and try to stop doing this. Just stop it, right? You ever seen that Bob Newhart video where he's a counselor and somebody comes in and begins describing all of their problems and all their emotional distress? It's like five minutes. They're just going on and on about all these things and they want to stop doing this, but they keep on doing it. At the end of it, Bob Newhart looks at him and just goes, I've got two words for you. Stop it. Just stop doing those things. If you want to stop doing it, just stop. And that was my understanding of fighting sin. Just stop it. I try to focus so hard to try to overcome it. But, friends, you won't overcome sin in your life simply by trying to will yourself past it. You overcome sin by finding more joy in God than finding joy in that sin. Where, in those moments, we can then say, here is this, and here is Jesus. Jesus is better. That's the moments that we begin to fight sin, when we're finding joy in him greater than joy in this world. Or coming to church, church attendance. Why do you come to church? I think it's, it's easy to just fall into a rhythm and go, well, I have to. I'm a Christian. We live in America. It's a thing. you got to come to church. Listen friends. I don't want you to come to church because you feel like you have to, because you feel obligated to. You should never have to apologize for missing a Sunday here or there. I don't want this church to be a church that's saturated with fear, having to always apologize when we're not living up to some standard we have in our minds. You have the freedom to go on vacation, obviously, on spring break. You have the freedom to get sick. You have the freedom to accidentally sleep through your alarm and wake up at 1230 and go, oh, wow, church was an hour and a half ago. (laughs) My hope for each of you is the same hope that the author of Hebrews had for his readers whenever he told them in Hebrews 10 let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why do we care if you come to church or not? Why do I care if you come to church or not? Is it just some mandatory law that we're making up so you'll be motivated by fear, saying here's what you have to do, make sure you do it? No, the reason why I care is because it's for your joy. So that you will be encouraged and stirred up to love. This is why we come. Not to just check something off a box and go, okay, I'm done. But to come together. To begin to fellowship with one another. To get to know one another more and more. To begin to develop those relationships that a family develops. A family of God. Brothers and sisters, no matter what our ages, no matter what our ethnicities, no matter what our races or what our backgrounds or socioeconomic statuses may be, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that truth supersedes anything else about us, that we are one in him. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Greek, there is no slave, no Scythian, no slave, nor free, but we are all one in Christ. That is the truth, and that as we get together as a family, we then consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, encouraging one another to make our joy grow more and more in him. And there will absolutely be moments where you wake up and you go, wow, it is early and I don't want to come to church, but I know that I need to. There will be moments like that, absolutely, but I hope that those will become the exception and not the norm. We'll begin to go, this is what we're doing. We are encouraging one another for our joy. Lastly, even also within the church, giving to the church. This is one, I think, that largely a lot of people have been burned on in the church. What a money in the church and the relationship here. And often it's done out of guilt, saying, "You need to do this. Look, the Bible commanded it. you need to do it. If you don't do it, you're a terrible Christian. People also often walk through life with that guilt going, okay, I need to give, but I feel like I'm not in a situation where I, I can give that much. I want to give, but I don't know. Oh, is it enough? I bet it's not enough. I feel bad. And friends, I won't even talk much more about it. I'll just read what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you hear the joy wrapped up in that? That God is saying, I'm not just concerned with you checking off a box. I don't need your check. I'm God. I speak and things happen. I don't need your money. What I want is your heart. I want you to give not just out of obligation, but out of joy. And that's who I love a cheerful giver. God is unconcerned with how much you give, He is concerned with how you give. Are you giving sacrificially? are you giving joyfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion or fear or obligation, but in joy, driven by the joy of what God has done for us, responding in generosity to the generosity that he's shown us. This is what marks the Christian church. Friends, this is what should mark the Christian life, and this is what should mark each and every one of us, a life filled with joy, and not just filled, filled to the brim, marked with this joy of what God has done for us and the hope that we have of one day being able to enjoy him forever. So you see, that's the distinction between fear and joy, religion and the gospel. It runs into nearly everything that we do. And again, there'll be times when our hearts are not in a perfect place. We don't have that joy. We may just have to be obedient and say, okay, I just need to do this because I know this will help me regain that joy. There'll absolutely be those moments but again, more and more as we begin to grasp this, I hope that those moments are the exception and not the norm. This is why Christ came, to usher in this new age of joy that the world had never seen before. Taking the depleted resources of religion and replacing them with the joy of the gospel filled to the brim. His shame will bring us to our joy. His embarrassment will bring us our life. And His funeral Will bring us to our great wedding where never again will we hear anyone say on that day, they have no more wine. Let's pray. God, thank you for doing what only you could have done. Thank you for bringing us joy and filling it to the brim. God, may, may we be a church that's marked by that joy. Fill us so full of your grace and joy that it flows out into every corner and facet of our lives. Help us to not be trapped in the chains of religion, but keep us always in the freedom of the gospel, living in response to what you've done for us. We know that none of this is possible apart from the hour of your son and the shedding of his blood. But We know what can wash away our sins. God, there is nothing but the blood of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen, amen.